Hello, and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel, and I am your host. To all of my original listeners, welcome back. To those new to the show, welcome. I am a storytelling historian with a great love for the Plantagenet dynasty, as I am a direct descendant to Geoffrey of Anjou via my paternal line on my grandmother Carter's side. I descend through Diana Skipwith, daughter of Sir Henry Skipwith and Amy Kemp. Diana married Captain Thomas Carter. They immigrated to the Americas in 1650, settling in Barford in Lancaster County, Virginia. So with that said, please like and download the show as it helps other listeners learn about the show. If you wish to support this podcast, there is a link for you to do so, and it would be much appreciated as it would help with costs of maintaining the website www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find the podcast as well as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode. Written by a countryman and contemporary of Jean Labelle at about the same time as the rape story which Labelle heard. Labelle was particularly biased in favour of Edward, but his informant about the rape scene clearly was not. The Count of Hainault himself was somewhat ambivalent, despite being Edward's brother-in-law. It seems there were anti-Edward polemicists in Hainault, and one of these took a story he had heard about Edward's brief infatuation with a woman at Walk and turned it into a tale of rape, centred on the family of the famous Earl of Salisbury. A Hainault audience in 1352 would not have known any better. The discussions about the alleged rape of the Countess have tended to obscure two important events which took place at this time. The first was the news that William Epworth, an officer of the Irish Exchequer, had been thrown into prison. Ireland had long been in a semi-autonomous state, and the Irish Exchequer had grown steadily poorer over the years, so when Edward tried to increase his revenues from the country by revoking all grants made since the death of Edward I, he was bound to cause a dispute. William Epworth was one of the men ordered on the 24th of July 1341 to reclaim all royal lands which had been granted out to other lords. Three days later, Edward showed his lack of understanding of the Irish situation by issuing a writ which stated that he would be better served in Ireland by English ministers having incomes and property in England than by Irishmen or Englishmen who have married and acquired possessions in Ireland and hold nothing in our kingdom of England. This was an overt attack on the independent culture of the Irish and Anglo-Irish nobility. They responded with determination. They met in a parliament at Dublin in October and then another at Kilkenny in November and put forward a series of carefully written and constructed petitions, laying the blame for the policy at the door of Edward's ministers. These petitions gave Edward cause for reflection, and he realised that he was not in a position to lay down the law in Ireland, not without going there. Over the following few months, he backtracked, restoring the territories he had tried to take into royal control, giving in to almost all the petitions. As with his dispute with Stratford, however much he believed he was in the right, there was a limit to how far he wanted to push an argument. The second important event of early 1342 was one of the largest tournaments which Edward ever held. It took place at Dunstable, directly after his return from Scotland, on the 11th to the 12th of February 1342. According to one account, all the armed youth of England were present and no foreigners were invited. The total of knights exceeded 250, 
In a fuller version of the same chronicle, it was noted that the earls of Derby, Warwick, Northampton, Pembroke, Oxford and Suffolk all took part, and the other earls were only excused by reason of old age or illness. The king himself fought as a simple knight. A number of barons from the west of England were present. Even Queen Philippa was there, despite being heavily pregnant again. She gave birth the following month to their eighth child, Blanche. Far in the north, the chroniclers in their monasteries noted it. Stabling alone cost more than £113. A tournament on this scale in February was unusual, for it was almost impossible to set up and complete everything in the short space of daylight. Indeed, it took so long to organise that it was almost dark before the tournament began. The reason usually given for the tournament at this time is that it was to celebrate the betrothal of the king's three-year-old son, Lionel of Antwerp, to the eight-year-old heiress of the earldom of Ulster, Elizabeth de Burr. This is supported by the royal wardrobe accounts. But one feature about this tournament stands out. This is the first tournament at which Edward is known to have used a personal motto. Practically everything made for this tournament was embroidered with the words, It is as it is, in English. Both the king and his son had state beds. Lionel's had love knots and leaves on it, powdered with silk roses in his coat of arms. The king's bed was covered in green cloth, embroidered with silk dragons which encircled the arms of England and France. Its top sheet had four circlets in which there are four angels, a final circlet in the middle covered with the helmet and crest of the king, while the field of this sheet is worked with other circlets and scrolls of silk bearing the legend, It is as it is. Perhaps it was the very mysteriousness of the motto which caused the chronicler who described the tournament, Adam Murraymouth, to misunderstand its purpose. Although he was no stranger to heraldic events, he thought it was to celebrate the truce with Scotland. That is hardly likely. Truces with Scotland were a common event, and never had they been celebrated on this scale by Edward, nor would it have been fitting to have the celebration so far from the border. But more than this, the organisation necessarily rules out the tournament being held at such short notice. Just making the costumes would have taken a considerable amount of time. The accounts reveal that Edward's tailor was paid for making various robes, tunics, surcoats and many other garments for the king and his magnates. Many of these were embroidered with it is as it is. Also, another suit of armour was made for the king bearing the arms of the legendary Sir Lionel, echoing the Dunstable Tournament of 1334. What did it mean, this motto, it is as it is? To date, the only historian seriously to have given this any thought assumed that the legend was fatalistic and that its origins were probably literary. A fatalistic message is entirely possible, meaning things are as they are and cannot be changed, in a negative, resigned sense. Given his recent Scottish expedition and his possible brief flirtation with a woman at walk, we might say that the resignation suggested by the phrase reflects his feelings about Scotland, or her, or even the recent chaos in Ireland but it is very unlikely that all the nobility of England would be gathered for such a purpose. A preferable interpretation is that it relates to the claim on the throne of France. It is as it is, being a cold assertion of the immutability of Edward's descent from Philip the Fair. Attractive and sensible as this interpretation would be, it is difficult to see why Edward waited four years after first claiming the title and two years after properly claiming it before making this show and why he made this demonstration in England, not France, and with no foreigners present and in the depths of winter. Another interpretation is possible. That it is as it is was not fatalistic at all, but exactly the opposite, a celebration. 
If one puts the stress on the first is, the phrase reads as an achievement. It is as it is, meaning things have come to be as they should be. This is supported by Edward's order of twelve red hangings to be made, each one embroidered with the it is as it is. These were huge. Each one was more than twenty feet long and more than ten feet wide. The cost of these twelve banners was almost thirty pounds, the annual income of nine skilled labourers. Although the statement was certainly mysterious, Edward wanted everyone to see it, and, for those who understood it, we may assume that it was important. It is likely that it is as it is finally announced the death of the old king, Edward II, to those who knew he had survived Barclay. We cannot be certain about this, but there are a number of details which support the suggestion. First and foremost, Edward III finally passed on to his son and heir, Edward of Woodstock, the title of Prince of Wales, the only title which his father had never given up, in the next Parliament in May 1343, strongly suggesting the old man had died by then. This was the first Parliament for two years, and so it would appear that Edward III had heard about his father's death in the period May 1341 to May 1343. Further support for this is that he made a pilgrimage to his father's tomb at Gloucester, his first such pilgrimage in March 1343 after a near-death experience, indicating that by then his father had very probably been placed in his tomb. An irregularity in Nottinghamshire Chantry Ordinance, probably arising as a result of Edward II's survival in 1335, was finally sorted out in January 1343, tempting us to push the terminus ante quem for Edward's death to 1342 at the latest. Given that Edward II was almost certainly still alive in 1339 and probably died in 31-42, to 42, it seems not unreasonable to connect the it-is-as-it-is message in February 1342 with the arrival of the news of the death not long before. It may well be that the appearance of Nicolonius Fieschi in London in November 1341 marks the critical moment. It seems that at last Edward had the chance to lay his father to rest. It might be said that he had been fortunate to have had the services of the Fieschi and Pope John XXII to guard his father and keep him secretly. But to reflect that he had lived with the problem of his father's secret survival for the last 14 years and had worked his foreign policy, his war and his relations with the Pope around this extraordinary situation and had even managed to meet his father again in Koblenz is to reflect that Edward had coped successfully with the worst crisis the Plantagenet monarchy had ever faced. He had even managed to initiate and sustain an expansionist foreign policy in spite of it. It also rings a significant change in his life, for Edward from now on could be even more aggressive. From now on, as far as we know, no one had any secrets which could be used to compromise him or restrain him. From now on, he did not need to tread so carefully. He could be himself like never before. 9. The Advent of the Golden Age Medieval ship captains preferred to sail within sight of land. Having no means of calculating longitude, it was very easy for them to lose direction, and especially so in high winds. When Edward set sail from Sandwich on the 5th of October 1342, there were gales to contend with and rough seas, so his captains carefully hugged the coast all the way to Portsmouth. Even then, they had to wait for the wind to change direction so they could proceed across the channel. Only on the 23rd of October did the coast of England finally disappear from Edward's view and that of Brittany appear on the horizon. The choice of Brittany was a profoundly sensible one. Like Flanders, it was a semi-autonomous part of France. 
If Edward could control it, he would have both a bridgehead in Philip's kingdom and a means of protecting his shipping lanes to Gascony. For years he had toyed with this idea and had taken care to remain on good terms with John, Duke of Brittany. Almost alone among French peers after 1337, John was allowed to keep his English estates and title, the Earldom of Richmond. Thus it may be seen that even when Edward had been trapped in his alliance with the German princes, he had had an alternative strategy in the back of his mind. The opportunity to capitalise on that far-sightedness finally arose in May 1341. As the king was being castigated, denounced and threatened with excommunication by the Archbishop of Canterbury, the news arrived that the Duke of Brittany had died, without leaving an obvious heir. As Edward had expected, the Duke's death precipitated a bitter inheritance dispute between his half-brother, John de Montfort, and his niece, Jeanne. Normally, there was little doubt that a male sibling of the half-blood took precedence over a daughter of a full-blood brother, but the late Duke had disliked his synonymous half-brother. So to make sure that John de Montfort did not inherit, the Duke arranged the marriage of his niece Jeanne to Charles de Blois, nephew of King Philip. Whatever the law said, John de Montfort would have to fight for his inheritance, and not only with Jeanne and her husband, but with the King of France too. John de Montfort was not unaware of the situation, and he was not unprepared. The moment his brother was laid to rest, he took a force and seized Nantes, the administrative centre of Brittany, as well as his half-brother's treasure and most of the other castles of the region. Charles de Blois was left standing, wondering. King Philip proved similarly hesitant. Edward, in contrast, had been waiting years for this opportunity. Having settled the crisis of 1341 by superficially capitulating to the Archbishop's supporters, he sent a knight to John de Montfort to discuss a possible treaty for mutual aid when the truce with France expired. At this point, de Montfort himself hesitated. The problem was not his opposition to Edward, but his justifiable anxiety in case his association with the English king should compromise his future standing in France. Philip assured him that he would have a fair hearing with regard to his inheritance in the French Parliament. It is possible that John actually believed him, to the extent that he supposed Jeanne's inheritance would be judged unlawful, as the relationship by which she claimed to be the heiress was the same as that which Edward III claimed to be King of France. But such subtleties were lost on Philip. The French Parliament similarly saw the question not in terms of inheritance law, but power. On the 7th of September 1341, they ruled that Philip's nephew, Charles de Blois, should be Duke, inheriting through his wife. Before this judgment was given, however, Philip unwisely reprimanded John de Montfort for consorting with the English king, and ordered him to remain in Paris to await the judgment. John de Montfort fled. Very few people in France in 1341 would have realised what a catastrophic decision their parliament had made. It threw John de Montfort and his legal claim straight into Edward's hands. Perhaps the French Parliament thought that Edward, who had just agreed to extend the truce sealed at Esplachat for another year, would be disempowered by the treaty from helping de Montfort. Perhaps they thought de Montfort could be arrested, or paid off, or killed, leaving Charles de Blois free to strengthen the royal hand in Brittany. But if so, they reckoned without the determination of John de Montfort's supporters, and in particular his wife, another of those redoubtable 14th-century women who did not flinch from the task of leading her troops into battle. Edward probably understood the situation better than anyone else, and certainly better than the consensus of the French Parliament. But having agreed to extend the truce until the 24th of June 1342, there was little direct action he could take before then. 
he waited to assess the strength of the support for the de Montfortist faction. All across the region, castles and towns fell to the French. At Lumeau, de Montfort came face to face with de Blois in a surprise encounter, and their armies battled each other for two days before de Montfort retreated to Nantes. After a week, the Nantesians forced de Montfort to surrender himself. He went to Paris under the protection of a safe conduct. When he refused to give up his inheritance, Philip immediately imprisoned him, disregarding what this said about the value of his own guarantees of safety and believing too soon that this marked his victory. But Lady de Montfort held out. In fact, she did more than just hold out. Having secured Rennes, she led an army to Redon, which she took by force, marching on to establish herself in the walled town of Ennebon on the southern coast. With a stern realism, she proclaimed her two-year-old son as the head of the de Montfortist faction in case her husband was put to death in Paris. And she wrote to Edward, imploring him to come to her aid. Edward was eager to get involved in the battle for Brittany. He did not actually need a lady in distress to heighten his ambitions in that part of France. Nevertheless, her example inspired him and many others, and it required him to take action before too late. He ordered a small advance party to set off in April 1342 under the command of Sir Walter Manny. He gave the Earl of Northampton and Robert d'Artois command of an expeditionary force to set off later. In the meantime, he built up his military reserves at the Tower. 7,000 longbows were ordered and 3 million arrows. As soon as the terms of the truce would allow, he would invade. Time was running short for all parties. Rennes fell in early May, and Charles de Blois advanced on Ennebon itself, sending his brother to besiege the other de Montfortis stronghold at Vin. In England, Edward was experiencing delays in sending Northampton and D'Artois, but Manny was underway and savaging the lands of the Bretons who had failed to support de Montfort. Truce or no truce, he could not afford to wait too long before attempting to help the Countess. Manny was a practical and hard-bitten man, very experienced and abounding in courage, Although Lady de Montfort worsted Charles de Blois's advance force in a skirmish at the walls of Ennebon, Manny knew that unless she received assistance quickly, there would be no de Montfortis' cause to support, and no bridgehead for Edward in northern France. Thus, despite the truce, Manny set sail for Ennebon. Within the town, the Countess was doing her best to inspire her men. She wore armour and rode around the streets of the town on a destrier, calling on the inhabitants to fight and defend what was theirs and hers. According to Foissin, she ascended a tall tower to observe the attack on the walls, and seeing that the enemy camp was almost unguarded while the assault was on, she took three hundred men-at-arms with her and made a sortie from the town, burning Charles de Blois's supplies and slashing the ropes and walls of his tents and pavilions. There would be no surrender at Ennebon. Charles ordered his commanders to begin a siege and to starve the inhabitants into submission. Promises were made and rewards offered to all those who would desert the de Montfortis cause. One of the Countess's advisers, the Bishop of Léon, was won over and returned to hold a council in which he tried to persuade the Countess and her vassals to agree to terms. The discussions went on for two days. The Bishop spoke eloquently and persuaded some of the Breton laws that their cause was lost. With his words ringing around the tower room in which discussions were taking place and with the continual thumping of the siege engines ringing in her head, the Countess got up from where she was sitting and walked to the window. Looking down, she could hardly believe the sight that greeted her. She gasped. I see the help we have been promised for so long has arrived. Sailing up the estuary were Sir Walter Manny's ships, their sails bearing the cross of St. George. 
The Bishop of Léon might have spoken eloquently, but the cross of St. George was even more persuasive. Manny's force was small, and its commander had crossed the divide between courage and recklessness so often as not to notice it existed. He later made a sortie just to destroy a single French siege engine at Ennebon because it was disturbing his meal. But it was a significant token of future support. By July, the truce had come to an end. The English were on their way. Edward landed in Brittany on the 26th of October. Already the English had won several significant victories. Lady de Montfort still held Ennebon, her forces now augmented with English troops, and that was a victory in itself. More significantly, the port of Brest, where Edward landed, had fallen to the Earl of Northampton. The Earl had even had the satisfaction of burning a dozen Genoese galleys in the service of the French. Most important of all, at Morlaix on the 30th of September, Northampton had moved to confront a French army under the command of Geoffrey de Charny and had won a decisive victory. Having marched through the night and dug in, and having ordered all his men to fight on foot, he had seized more than 150 knights and killed 50 others, besides thousands of men-at-arms and infantry. Back in England, the result was wonder, admiration and excitement. Murraymouth dutifully recorded incorrectly that a few English, namely a force of 500 men, defeated 3,000 French knights in battle. It was more like 3,000 Englishmen and Bretons against 5,000 Frenchmen, but that was not the way it was reported. Edward decided that Vannes would be his principal objective. The French had taken it not long before, and thus controlled its harbour, which was of strategic interest to the English. But it was not an easy target. Edward decided on a two-pronged assault by land and sea. He dispatched Robert d'Artois with the ships which remained in Brittany, while he himself led the overland advance. D'Artois was a brave leader but an unlucky man, and the very last vestige of his little luck was now used up. He was attacked on the way by Spanish and Genoese ships. Leading an attack on Van itself with the remains of his navy, he was overpowered and mortally injured. With his death a few weeks later, Edward lost a trusted and likeable friend, a man who had never betrayed him, but who had never lived up to the confidence he had placed in his military abilities. Despite the personal loss, it was to Edward's benefit that the positions of command in the field now fell to English lords. There were at least half a dozen very able commanders with Edward, including the earls of Derby, Warwick, Huntingdon, Northampton and Salisbury, and Sir Walter Manny. Allowing these men to exercise their strengths and to fulfil their ambitions marked a new stage in the development of Edward's success as a king. Thirty years earlier, Robert Bruce in Scotland had run rings around the English by encouraging a cadre of commanders who would seek personal glory and yet be part of a collective struggle. Through encouraging the likes of Black Douglas and Sir Thomas Randolph, Bruce had wrested Scotland from the English. When Edward had begun his French war, he had failed to pursue a similar course of action. Instead, he had relied on the chivalric ambitions of other heads of state, the indecisive Count of Hainault, the wary Duke of Brabant, the merchant Van Artvelde, and the mercenary Emperor Ludwig. His trust in them was misplaced. They were never going to share his strategic objectives or be part of the confraternity of warriors which would defeat Philip. They would never feel personally bound to Edward's peculiarly English quarrel, and still less to his personal command. But as soon as those responsibilities and expectations passed to his vassals, everything changed. In Brittany, Edward began to reassert himself as the King Arthur of a chivalric court of victorious warriors who vied with each other for glory. As Edward destroyed the region around Vannes, the earls of Northampton and Warwick destroyed that around Nantes. 
the Earl of Salisbury devastated the area around Dinant. Throughout Brittany, the army and the supporters of Charles de Blois were on the retreat. The endgame in Brittany was approaching. Edward had a weakness, however. Being so far from home, he had difficulty raising supplies, and living off the land for any length of time in winter was not easy. He had lost many of his ships. His armies were dispersed across Brittany, and there were not enough of them to face a full French onslaught. In December, the main French army approached. It joined up with Charles de Blois's companions who had survived Morlaix and presented Edward with a force several times the size of his own. It stopped eighteen miles short of the English army. Despite this show of force, as at Esplechin, Edward managed to negotiate a compromise which did not reflect the precariousness of his situation. His treaty negotiators were like his commanders, enthused and personally committed to the struggle which he had started. In this respect, it has to be said that Edward's judgment of men to do the job was impeccable. On the 19th of January, 1343, the Treaty of Malatois was agreed. Edward had to lift the siege of Vannes, but otherwise almost every term was in his favour. The allegiances, gains and losses in Brittany were to be respected, and no further war was to take place in Gascony, Scotland or elsewhere. John de Montfort was to be released, Flanders would remain outside the orbit of French control. The truce was to last for more than three years. Edward had effectively added one more frontier to his war on Philip de Valois. He had conquered a corner of France and managed to call himself king of it without incurring serious loss. When Edward had opted to lead the land army to attack Van, he may well have been expressing a personal preference. Although he had commanded at the significant naval victory at Sluss, he was not lucky out on the open sea. Or perhaps we should say that he was lucky, for he seems to have survived more near-death experiences at sea than in battle. In 1326 he had been blown off course by a storm when returning to England with Mortimer and his mother. In 1340 he had almost died in a storm at the mouth of the Thames. He had suffered in the gales on his crossing to Brittany. And now, in February 1343, on his return trip, he got caught in a catastrophic tempest which seriously threatened his life once more. Several ships in his fleet were lost, swept over and smashed to pieces by the waves. There was, of course, no respite from drowning for anyone on board those unfortunate boats. The whole fleet was dispersed, the sailors doing all they could simply to bring their vessels to port. Murrymouth noted how the surviving ships put into ports wherever they could across southern England. The ship carrying Lady de Montfort ended up drifting into a port in Devon. Wreck stories clearly had a popular appeal, as most chroniclers note Edward's escape, even the far northern ones. A Franciscan chronicler on the Scottish border noted that Edward incurred many dangers in returning from Brittany, especially from flashes of lightning and unprecedented storms, whereby nearly all his ships were scattered from him and several were sunk in the sea. It is said that not one of his sailors or soldiers was so cheerful amid these storms and dangers as himself, who ever remained fearless and unperturbed through all of them, whence he was delivered by God's grace and the Blessed Virgin's intercession, whom he always invoked and chose as his particular patron in all dangers. On the 1st of March, he was blown to shore at Melcombe Regis in Dorset. He set off immediately for London and reached the capital three days later. But this was one storm which had deeply affected him. He seems to have sworn at the height of the gales to go on a whole series of pilgrimages if he was saved. He even seems to have prayed to his recently deceased father to save him. He performed the promised pilgrimages straight away. In London, he gave thanks at the high altar of St. Paul's Cathedral. 
He then took a handful of men and went to his father's tomb at Gloucester and gave thanks at the high altar there and at Walsingham Abbey. He went on foot to Canterbury and gave thanks at the altars dedicated to St. Thomas Becket and the Virgin Mary. At each place he promised a costly gift, and a gold incense boat in the shape of a ship was later delivered to each shrine. If Edward stood alone and unafraid on the deck of his storm-beleaguered ship, it was only because he was praying in the fury of the storm and believed the Virgin Mary, St. Thomas Becket, and his late father were all looking out for him. On the 28th of April, 1343, Edward opened the first Parliament held since the crisis of 1341. There was much to discuss. One interesting preliminary was to ordain that in future no representative should come to Parliament in armour or with long knives or other weaponry as they had sometimes done in the past. The first main item on the agenda was the Treaty of Malatois. In the now accepted fashion, the two Houses of Parliament deliberated separately and delivered their verdicts on the 1st of May. Both Houses approved of the treaty and of the continued search for peace, but if no adequate peace could be obtained, they approved of Edward continuing his quarrel with the French king and would support him in this. It was a conciliatory statement, made in the light of the military successes in Brittany, but also in the wake of Edward's refusal to summon a parliament for two years. Even more conciliatory was Parliament's acceptance of Edward's revocation of the statute forced on him on that occasion. Parliament and Crown had reached an understanding. Although the prelates and representatives of the shires and towns might press for reform, the king would not accept extremist measures or changes which might undermine his ability to run the government efficiently. As a result, the 1343 Parliament was a success for Edward. He not only achieved support for his foreign policy, he renewed his royal authority over Parliament, so much so that for the next 30 years representatives never questioned Edward's authority over ministerial appointments, nor his right to give royal estates to his chief vassals. Along with parliamentary acknowledgement of the possibility of renewed hostilities came the agreement to fix wool customs and a grant of duty to the king on wool for the next three years. Gradually, Edward was bringing his finances back under control. He dealt with some of his continental allies by responding to their demands for payments with letters stating that if he had failed to pay them by a certain date, then their obligations to him would lapse. The debt then was strategically neglected. Not all debts could be treated in this way, of course. Those owing to the Bardi and Peruzzi were a particularly difficult problem. If Edward simply backed out of these, there would inevitably be international repercussions. Indeed, shortly after this, both the Bardi and the Peruzzi banking houses collapsed. The responsibility for the failure of the Bardi and the Peruzzi has traditionally been ascribed solely to Edward's refusal to honour his debts. This is a serious accusation. It amounts to personal responsibility for the biggest banking crash before modern times. But the view that Edward simply backed out of his financial commitments is mainly based on the opinion of a well-respected Florentine writer, Giovanni Villani, whose brother Filippo was a member of the Peruzzi. Villani said that Edward owed the Bardi 900,000 gold florins, 135,000 pounds, and the Peruzzi 600,000, 90,000 pounds, and that his refusal to pay caused an economic collapse across Florence and much further afield. Such an opinion is neither independent nor justified. Edward never refused to pay his debts. Moreover, recent research has shown that the Peruzzi, whose records survive, did not have the capital to lend Edward this much money, not even a fraction of it. For Edward to have owed them 600,000 florins, they would have needed to have raised further capital in England. 
They may have done this, but if so, they must have received further income or actual repayments for which Villani does not account. From the English records, we may estimate what these repayments were. The total amount borrowed over the period 1337-41 to 41 has been calculated at 687,000 florins, 103,000 pounds from the Bardi, and 474,000 florins, 71,000 pounds from the Peruzzi. Some of this was repaid in cash, and some was repaid through royal grants, especially grants of wool, which allowed the Italians to recoup much of their original investment and to build up their capital. In other words, the total of more than one million florins represents only the borrowings, not the repayments, and thus not the balance owing. It is now thought that the actual amount which Edward defaulted on was nearer the amount he later acknowledged, a mere £13,000. Edward's failure to repay this amount would have dented the company's profitability, but it would not by itself have proved disastrous. Historians tend to regard the internal disputes in Florence as the cause of the crash, not Edward's failure to repay his debts. It is a telling fact that the third largest Florentine banking house, the Acciaioli, also suffered heavily in the 1340s, and many other smaller Florentine banking firms collapsed, despite the fact that they had not lent any money to Edward. The other important financial measure discussed in the Parliament of 1343 was the currency. For the last 500 years, practically the only coins minted in England had been silver pennies. Henry III had tried to introduce a gold penny worth 20 pennies in 1257, but it had failed. Edward I had issued a new silver coinage in 1279, which resulted in the minting of silver groats, four pennies, half-pences and farthings, as well as pennies. But most international trade and much domestic business was conducted in florins, around three shillings, and marks, 13 shillings, four pence, so silver pennies were of limited use as they were needed in their hundreds. Edward knew that a successful gold currency would be exported, and English gold coins would be handled and looked at in Avignon, Genoa and Paris, as well as more Anglophile cities such as Ghent and Bruges, and similar English dominions such as Gascony. The principle to which he was aspiring was very similar to the modern idea of trademark advertising. Edward would circulate artistically sculpted pieces of gold all around Europe, showing him as a truly international monarch. As a result of these discussions, the first important English gold coins appeared in 1344. The largest of these was closely modelled on the French gold currency, showing Edward enthroned with a leopard on the other side, Edward's own emblem and the heraldic beast on the English coat of arms. These first gold coins proved unsuccessful, being undervalued in relation to the value of the gold, so later, in the same year, 1344, he ordered the minting of the mighty noble, a gold coin worth half a mark, six shillings, eight pence. This showed the king standing on the deck of a ship. The ship logo drew attention to his victory at Sluss, but even more importantly, it showed Edward as a king crossing seas, giving him that international status which he craved. This was a medieval power statement of the first order. It took a few reissues to get the balance of gold and nominal value right, but Edward would not allow his moneyers to fail. The figure of Edward standing on his ship, bearing a shield with the arms of France and England quartered, became one of the most widely known and enduring images of 14th century kingship, being copied in the gold coinage of every subsequent medieval English king. It was also in 1343 that Parliament first pressed Edward to limit the power of the Pope. It seemed to Parliament that foreigners were increasingly being appointed to the most lucrative benefices in the English Church. Edward seized on this. 
It gave him a weapon with which to attack Pope Clement VI, the newly elected successor to the peace-loving Benedict XII. Clement was, like his predecessor, a Frenchman. In fact, he had previously served as Chancellor under King Philip. But his predecessor had been a man with whom Edward could do business, being genuinely concerned to find a peaceful solution to the Anglo-French problem. Clement saw that Benedict's policy had failed. As a Frenchman living at Avignon, he naturally decided that the only way forward was to bring such pressure to bear on Edward that the English king would have to back down. During this Parliament, Edward wrote to Clement stressing how papal appointees often failed to perform their duties. With so many hospitals, monasteries, chantries and other foundations having been endowed by the English for the English, what benefit could arise from their revenues going abroad? Edward argued that God's work was at peril, souls were in danger, and churches were falling into disrepair. By the Ordinance of Provisors, Edward prohibited the receipt in England of papal letters against his interests, and the appointment of any clergy to ecclesiastical positions by such letters. Not only was it enacted with force, with several papal provisions being confiscated, it also resulted in the arrest and banishment of the proctors of the papal peace envoys. Edward realised that he could bring pressure to bear on the Pope by representing the nationalist perspective. This was a question of enduring importance to the English. It would not be laid to rest until Henry VIII settled the matter 200 years later by removing the Church of England from papal authority altogether. The latter part of 1343 and early 1344 was a time of relative calm and stability for Edward. He was now 31 years of age and stronger than ever. He was approaching solvency once more and could afford to remedy some of the embarrassing measures he had taken in 1338, such as redeeming his and Philippa's golden crowns from pawn. The pattern of his life reflected the way he had lived ten years earlier, a proud young knight going from tournament to tournament and from hunt to hunt, always in the company of knights and women. Among his accounts, we find reference to mulberry-coloured Turkish cloth and taffeta for Queen Philippa, Queen Isabella and four countesses to go on a hunting expedition with the king. The same account allows us a glimpse of Edward and the Earl of Northampton dressed in white, with eleven earls and knights dressed in green Turkish cloth and fifteen royal squires waiting on them, all dressed in green. Another reference reveals Edward participating in a tournament at Smithfield on the 24th of June 1343, jousting for three days against thirteen knights dressed up as the Pope and twelve cardinals. No diplomatic niceties here. This was loud and clear political commentary, in which Edward was very clearly setting himself up as England's champion against the Pope. After a summer of tournaments, hunting, and sending increasingly uncompromising letters to Avignon, Edward prepared for the next great public event. This was the second of his great winter tournaments at Windsor. On the 18th of January, 1344, he gathered all the armed youth of England, including the Earls of Derby, Salisbury, Warwick, Arundel, Pembroke and Suffolk, and many other knights and barons. As usual, he also invited large numbers of women. Nine countesses were present, the wives of London merchants and barons, as well as Queen Philippa and their younger children. His mother, Queen Isabella, was also there. With all the other nondescript men, women and servants, it amounted to an indescribable host of people. Prince Edward, now thirteen, was given a prominent role, although he probably did not take part in the jousting. Everyone ate and drank liberally, and dances were not lacking among the lords and ladies, embraces and kisses alternately intermingling. Foreign knights came to join in the jousting, 
and the action involving Edward, his son, and eighteen other knights who took on all comers went on for three days. Gifts of money, precious objects and clothes were given, and minstrels played throughout. A great banquet was given on the Monday in which all the women ate in the hall with no men present except two French knights who waited on them. Finally, on the Wednesday evening, at the end of the tournament, Edward spoke to the crowd and gave instructions that no one was to go home, but everyone was to stay the night and hear an announcement he would make the following day. On Thursday morning, Edward was up early. He dressed in his finest new clothes and wore over everything a mantle of exquisite velvet and his crown. The queens likewise were specially dressed and accompanied him into the castle chapel to hear mass. After the ceremony, led by two earls from the chapel, he stood outside and addressed the crowd. He took a Bible, and turning to the Gospels, he swore a vow that he would begin a round table in the true spirit of King Arthur and maintain it with three hundred knights. He added that he would build a great round building within the castle at Windsor where all these men and their ladies could eat together. The building would be two hundred feet in diameter and surpass any previously seen in Europe. Every year, at Whitson, he would hold a great tournament at the castle, like this they had just experienced. The earls present joined him in his oath, and afterwards there was more dancing to the minstrels and drums with a great feast of exotic dishes before all went home after their five days of merrymaking. One man had already gone home. In the jousting, William Montague, Earl of Salisbury, and for many years Edward's best friend, had been badly injured. On the 30th of January... Eight days after the round-table tournament ended, he died. The man who had delivered Edward his kingdom and had dutifully followed him in his expeditions to Scotland, the Low Countries, France and Brittany, was no more. He was taken the short distance to Bism Priory, which he had founded in the place of Edward's first childhood home, and was buried in the church there. Edward was back at Westminster when he heard of Salisbury's death. There are no signs of any great outpouring of grief, nor of expensive arrangements for the burial, but nor would we necessarily find these in royal accounts. The official records simply note the bureaucratic process of winding up the earl's affairs. It is perhaps surprising that the chroniclers hardly mention Salisbury's death, and none mention any signs of grief from Edward. If the king attended his funeral there, it was in a private capacity, with little fuss. Maybe from this we should wonder whether there was some truth in Foissart's confused story of Edward's lust for the Countess. However, there is one sign that the death of his one-time friend caused Edward to stop and think. More than any other man, Salisbury was Edward's partner in chivalric role-playing. He had participated in most of the many tournaments Edward had attended in the seventeen years since he had become king. It was thus no surprise that he was there, jousting alongside Edward when the round table was announced. The loss of Salisbury might therefore be the reason why he only half-heartedly set about the building project. Work began in February as planned, but was soon scaled back due to the expense and stopped altogether in November. There would be no round table. The half-built huge stone circular walls stood empty. It seems the harsh reality of death had stripped the romance away from the tournament at Windsor. Indeed, tournaments altogether lost their appeal for him. Several years were to pass before he lifted a lance in sport again. By the time Edward walked into the painted chamber at Westminster to meet Parliament again on the 7th of June 1344, the war of words with the Pope had escalated to condemnations as fierce as those Edward had exchanged with the Archbishop of Canterbury during the crisis of 1341. Pope Clement threatened Edward with excommunication and told him he was in rebellion. 
This was not likely to result in a comfortable atmosphere for the delegation negotiating peace with France. Things could only get harder for them when Clement openly denounced the English claim to the French throne. In January 1344, Edward responded by directly condemning the papal custom of providing benefices to his companions, and followed this up with an accusation that Philip had broken the truce, as some of Edward's allies had been executed in Paris. Edward's envoys claimed this was a renewal of hostilities, and that English emissaries to the Pope were no longer safe in France. The Pope expressed his disquiet, but did little more. As far as he was concerned, Philip was in the right, if only because the politics of restraint demanded that Edward had to be in the wrong. In Parliament, Edward put forward the breaking of the truce in the most uncompromising terms. Philip, he declared, had falsely and maliciously put his allies to death with the assent of the French Parliament. He had raised armies and attacked Gascony and Brittany, seizing castles, towns, manors and fortlets, and occupying English royal lands. The answer was unanimous. Everyone, lords, prelates and commons alike, all asked Edward to bring this war to a close, either by battle or a suitable peace if he could get one. Moreover, they asked unanimously that he should confront Philip and not be delayed by papal intervention or the peacemaking efforts of anyone else. Parliament wanted an end to this war, and the people of England, who by now had borne a heavier tax burden than any other people in history, wanted closure on their own terms. To this end, they added an interesting clause to the grant of a new subsidy. The money was conditional on Edward personally crossing over to France with an army to force Philip to submit. All seemed set now for Edward's next invasion of France. Parliament and King were in accord over this and many other issues, from opposing papal interference to domestic legal reform. But still, Edward did not rush to war. Instead, he used Parliament's resolutions to bring more pressure to bear on the Pope. He made one last attempt to negotiate, repeating his claim to France in a meticulously worded document presented to the Pope by an experienced team of negotiators, the Bishop of Norwich, John and Andrew Offord, Thomas Fastolf and Nicolonius Fieschi. Clement himself presided over the discussion, perhaps unnerved a little by how strong the arguments were in favour of Edward's claim. Biased he most certainly was, but neither his bias nor his acuity could break the stone wall of Edward's negotiators. They had powers only to discuss the claim to the French throne, which Edward would not under any circumstances give up. When offered money or a new title, Edward's representatives expressed indignation. In this they did well, for they did exactly what Edward wanted them to do. In December 1344, the conference broke down, with the Pope, the Cardinals and the French delegation failing to persuade Edward's redoubtable negotiators to admit any weakness in his position. Edward spent the latter part of 1344 attending to the discussion with the Pope, receiving and delaying papal nuncios, and planning his next move in great detail. So concerned was he with this that he seems not to have attended Philippa's churching after the birth of his fourth daughter, Mary, who had been born at Waltham near Winchester in October. Instead, he remained at Westminster or at the Tower before moving off to Norwich for Christmas. He had now extricated himself from his financial embarrassment, having redeemed the last of his pawn jewels in October. He was more popular at home than he had been in years. Now, he simply needed to put all his assets... Armies, inspirational commanders, revenues, diplomats,